Children cry when they are sick and cry when staff come to their bedside to take observations or do routine procedures. Often we have to hold them. Is that okay? Or are we adding to the burden of the treatment? Doctors order the tests and treatments and then usually leave it to the nurses to carry out the orders. How do nurses feel about doing this day in, day out, shift after shift? These are everyday practical issues faced by nursing staff in children's hospitals. But underpinning these tasks are ethical principles that need unpacking. Welcome to Essential Ethics and this podcast in our series of Nursing Ethics. Is there a good way to hold children for procedures? Or are there other things we can do so that we don't have to hold them at all? I'm your podcast host, Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre here at Royal Children's Hospital. To help us think about holding children for procedures, I'm joined by Kat Wood, Clinical Nurse Consultant in Complex Care at the Royal Children's Hospital. Kat, you've worked on the wards and you've worked as after-hours clinical nurse consultant, where many procedures get done after hours. And you're also on our Clinical Ethics Committee. So welcome to Essential Ethics. Thank you. Also joined by Emily Cull, who's clinical nurse consultant in Comfort Kids at the Royal Children's Hospital. Emily, welcome. Thank you. And to help us think about the ethical issues, we're also joined by Dr. Jenny O'Neill, PhD and clinical nurse consultant in bioethics at the Children's Bioethics Centre at Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome, Jenny. Thanks, John. Kat, I'm really interested in what might be the most difficult of these procedures to do. And is there an age when it seems worse? I think any procedure can be difficult. I think... um Every procedure, there's a child that will tolerate it well and children that will not. Some children are quite fine with IV insertions. Many children are not. Um, Again, nasogastric tube insertion is always a difficult one, but it depends on the level of planning and how comfortable a child is and whether they've had that before. So I think every procedure done on a to a child or baby or young person has the potential to be extraordinarily difficult and traumatic or well-planned and potentially smooth as it can be. Well, Kat, I'm putting my hand up to say I think nasogastric tube would be the worst thing. Uh, is, is there an age, you think, that, um, that, that some of these uh, procedures are sort of worse at? Yeah, I think probably from about maybe toddler to young child where there's less of an ability for the child to understand why the procedure needs to happen. An older child might be able to understand that they need the straw to go in to have some fluids or um, but a young child that may not be able to understand and be reasoned with when they, you know, can't understand the rationale behind it. And and Kat, I, I'm taking it, we're talking now about procedures, things like IVs, blood taking, nasogastric tubes. And I think today we'll talk about those fairly relatively straightforward, at least in terms of how the medical people might feel about them. Um, who normally holds the child for those? Is it another nurse? Is it uh, is it the parent? I mean, it depends on the level of planning that's gone into it. Ideally, we would have the parents holding their child in a position of comfort um, and potentially there may be nursing staffing there to help support with the position of comfort Um However, and there often is medical staff involved in a lot of these procedures that may also be um, assisting in positioning the child. Well, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad, Kat, that you've sort of brought in the medical staff so we're not the total bad people here in terms of just ordering the tests and leaving you to it. But I think one of the words that's come up a couple of times is planning. And in a moment, we're going to hear from Emily because I think that's going to be a really strong theme in how we can minimise the impact uh, on the child. But I also think even right up front, we want to see, and I can see in your eyes, which the listeners can't, that this is taking its toll potentially on the people involved in the procedure. So the nursing staff and the parents and obviously the child. But Jenny, I'd like to cut to you nice and early because this is essential ethics. And Kat's also raised lots of issues that that really highlight that ethics is right here. So even if perhaps with a first hat on, Kat's thinking about practically how do we do this, how do we do it as nicely as we can, but what are the ethical principles that are underpinning this holding the children for procedures? Why, why are we allowed to do it? Well, I think the ethical principles, we sometimes underestimate um, the role they 
play in decision-making in holding a child because it's happened so frequently in an acute care hospital because it's an everyday um, occurrence um, sometimes and because it happens in a fast-paced situations often um, and often not with a lot of planning. So we don't think it through in terms of ethical principles. But really, if we break it down, all the people involved in undertaking that procedure are doing it because they feel that this uh, intervention is in the best interest of the child. So we're trying to balance the best interests of the child um, with um, allowing the child to have choice. So the autonomy or the developing autonomy of the child, particularly um, if they're refusing the procedure and uh, if they're verbalising it or not cooperating with the procedure, so not obviously giving their assent to the procedure, do we go ahead and overrule their assent because the, the, their best interest is to complete this intervention? Um, and that's the that's the tension, that's the ethical tension and that played out over and over again can can have a burden on, on nursing staff and other clinical staff. So you've raised two very important principles, haven't you? You've, you've raised best interests and sometimes in principles that's as phrased as beneficence, which is a big and ugly word sometimes, but also you're raising respect for autonomy. And I think with, with children, we're also sort of phrasing that as respect for the person too, mm. aren't we? And we're yeah. thinking, well, how do That's we right. respect this person? And uh, do we have to honour their dissent? They don't want this done. That's pretty natural for lots of people, but especially children who perhaps don't understand. But do we honour that? Or can we still honour it in a sense by doing it, but doing it in a way that's not so difficult for the child and doesn't leave lasting bad memories? Luckily, Jenny, we are joined by Emily, who's here. And Emily, you come from uh, Comfort Kids. Uh, and I think that's not the only group in the hospital who are involved with supporting children and families and nurses and doctors, in that order, maybe, when kids have to have difficult procedures and be held. So what, how did you get into it and, and what do you do and what is Comfort Kids? Yeah, so I work in the Comfort Kids program, which, um, as you've mentioned, is one of many and we often uh, sometimes can get confused with the child life therapy team. So the child life therapy team are a non-clinical service, so they can help with um, distraction and therapeutic play and are often a really integral part when we're doing procedures. The Comfort Kids uh, role is a little bit different. We have a clinical nursing background. Um, we have two EFT and we cover um, business hours Monday to Friday. And our job is to um, support children through procedures and that can be um, any procedure from a, a blood test to a dressing change, um, talking with Kat earlier, what constitutes a procedure, sometimes for children even taking a medication, you know, can be seen as a procedure. And, you know, our philosophy is that it's everyone's business to minimise pain, distress and anxiety during routine procedures. So while we would love to be, we are not around the clock service. So a big part of our role is also education um, to give um, staff and families um, the resources to be able to do these things after hours. Um, and a lot of those things can be done um, with little to no resources. The Tribe Life Therapy team have um, amazing um, resources and, you know, can bring along iPads and sensory toys. Um, but as we know, when it's, you know, 9pm on a Sunday evening and they're not around, um, there are still some really important things we can do, um, some basic um, procedural supports that we can put in place. I mean, I suspect from the medical team that, you know, the focus is often on just getting it done. You know, and, and that's sort of very natural tendency. And I suspect a lot of parents have that concept too, and I've been involved with parents. They just just hold him and do it. Uh, and and that's done to the greater good of getting the child well, as, as you're indicating, uh, Jenny. And, you know, it seems like what we might be doing is prioritising, not a little but a lot, but prioritising beneficence, getting the kid well, over-respect for the child. And, and maybe, a, you know, a consequential ethic type approach might be, well, it gets the job done and it doesn't matter so much how that happens and how the journey is. Uh, in a clinical sense, Kate, is that how you see it often might feel like, just get it done? Yeah, I think a lot of nursing staff and probably medical professionals and even parents would think that it's almost a reasonable harm to hold a child down to ensure that the procedure is done. Many people would probably think more harm will come to the child if we don't get this IV in 
than if we hold the child down to get the IV in, when in reality those aren't the only two options, I think, and that's where that reasonable level of harm that we, you know, that I'm sure every nurse has potentially been a part of is, you know, an uncomfortable procedure or situation that they can feel better about it because they got the IV in and the child is getting the treatment that they require. I think that is a prevalent viewpoint. Yeah. And but it, is it ethical? It, ah, what, how fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's there, isn't it? And, and I think that's perhaps sort of simple first look, let's do this. But part of the podcast and, and part of the series is to think, well, can we, can we do it better? And I think when we bring ethics into it, I think that elevates our desire to do it better. And I actually think the speed with which it is, and Jenny's helping us unpack some of the ethical things that are going on. So even when it's time limited, you've got to do it quickly, you can still get through a lot of the steps of this uh, in a good way. And Jenny, uh, Kat's introduced the concept of harm. So we've talked about beneficence, uh, respect for the child, and, and, and there's other principle lying at the end, which is minimising minimising harm because I don't think we can do, totally do no harm because whenever we want to do something, there's going to be some harm, but we can we can minimise it. But how much of a trade-off is there between a bit of harm, doing good and, and respect for the child? Do we have to make that much of a trade-off or can we have it all? I think, in, uh, I think we can have it all. I don't think in every case we can have it all. So I think there are some situations where if we plan properly, if we uh, give the child, if we respect the child's choices and preferences, um, if we prepare them properly and the parents properly, they can feel quite empowered that they've um, managed to get through a procedure that they were previously scared of or had a lot of anxiety about. And I think that's the best possible outcome. In most cases, I think it's about minimising the harm and minimising not only the short-term harm that can be involved with holding a child in the moment, which most parents would say children, particularly young children, recover from quite quickly. And so, but they don't see the ongoing long-term harm that people like Emily have seen in her her um, area of practice. And we see that. And I think that's one reason why... Um, uh, the procedure, the benefit of the procedure is prioritised over respect for the child because a lot of parents um, just don't understand that there can be a long-term harm and a lot of clinicians also don't see that part of it. I mean, I think that's partly because the care is you know, different people are doing things at different times, but a lot of the kids who come to uh, a big children's hospital like ours, it won't be a one-off broken arm, something needs setting, it'll be a, a chronic illness where many procedures are, are going to be. And of course, the risk is you get one of those goes badly and sensitise the kid to the next experience. Uh, yeah, which is really... The other thing that I thought was great, which syn synchronises nicely with some of our other podcasts is, you know, when we've been talking about deciding with children, we've been talking about engaging the child. And in fact, although we're talking about holding today, but you're talking about actually engaging the child where possible and the parent in the process and even talking about preferences. So it might be left arm, right arm, and that in itself might be part of the or one of the things that starts to ameliorate the harms yes. from the procedure. Yeah, the child is then, uh, has a little bit more control and part of this is is the holding, um, it's a whole procedural management and, and the feeling of being not in control um, of what's going on as well as not understanding what's going on. Emily, we've talked about holding. It seems to be, you know, one of the big things that, that's happening here. We've got a procedure to do. Jimmy doesn't want it done. We're going to have to hold Jimmy for it to happen. So, I mean, can holding help the situation? Is there a right way to hold or is it always wrong or there's wrong ways to do it? What, what are your practical experience with holding? Yeah, so... Um it's difficult as there's not a lot of uh, evidence out there supporting um, holding, but what we have found is that um, having a child sitting up on their parent's lap in an upright position is um, is what's encouraged. Um, and that just gives the children a sense of, and, and young people, a sense of power. I think positioning um, is a big one um, and 
even there's evidence to show that children from six months old prefer to sit up for procedures. So I think sometimes for uh, the clinician's uh, benefit, it might be easier if the child were laying flat on the bed to get the job done. Um, but in most procedures, uh, we can have the child sitting up at least for the start until they're starting to feel comfortable. And then if we need to move them into a different position. So one of my big recommendations would be um, to have the child sitting up where possible and then um, sitting up on their child's lap. Um, you know, sometimes the parents can um, have them in, in a cuddle um, or a comfort hold. Jenny and I know that the terminology is another thing that's really tricky. Um, we did a, a, a study here at RCH um, and found that um, there, there's no um, agreement in terminology, which makes it quite tricky. Uh, so for one uh, clinician, they might describe that as restraint and another person might describe describe that as a procedural cuddle uh, which so they can be quite different things so I think we had uh, a minimum of 11 different holding terms um, for any uh, photograph that we showed in this study um, so it can be tricky but I think um, keeping the child's um, level of distress is probably the one thing. If the child is, is happy and, and having a cuddle and sitting up on their parent's lap versus, um, you know, being held in a way that's not comfortable for them and they don't feel um, safe and supported. So it's a tricky one, um, but I would say sitting up, giving them that sense of control and taking into account their level of comfortability versus distress. It's fascinating the level of controls come out with both you and, and Jenny and I can sort of start to see now why, why sitting up is good. But what you're also talking about is patient-centred care where, of course, you know, our institutions have been designed to support the doctors and the nursing staff uh, and, and this is really important. What, what about the, the, the sort of proximity to the parent sitting up? Do you think it's not just sitting up but it's sitting up and being in that lovely close position with the parent that's adding something? Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a comfort measure. It's a feeling of, of safety. Um, you know, in any visit to a hospital, a child might come into contact with 20, 30 different clinicians. Um, and if it's the nurse or doctor who's just walked on for the day and we need to do this procedure, they essentially could be a stranger to the child. So having having that person there that they, they trust, um, but then also having those conversations with the parents we sort of touched on earlier is also giving them a role in procedures. I feel like sometimes uh, parents are forgotten a bit and we just assume they know what to do. Um, and often parents are quite lost in a procedure. They've never done it before. They don't know where they should be sitting, what they should be doing to support their child. So it's really important to have that conversation with the parent before, see what they're comfortable with and explain to them, this is what it's going to look like. And this is why we think you should be there. Sometimes parents go oh, it, it's a bit much and I'd, I'd rather step out of the room. Um, but we, where everyone feels comfortable, we encourage the, the parent to be there as a support because, you know, in most cases, that's a huge comfort to the child. Yeah, and I think it's important for the parents. There must be nothing worse than being outside and wondering what's going on inside, especially if there are some tears. Uh, not knowing is it would be even worse. And I think, you know, parents have a, a role and a duty and they want to fulfill that and obviously supporting them to be the parent, uh, which comes you know, easier to some to some parents than others. Kat, I'm really interested in the practical point because when I think about, uh, you know, the wards and, I, and, and, you know, often kids will go to a treatment room for various reasons, sometimes because the bed area is just as busy with other stuff and you can't put all your things there or the special equipment um, in the room. But when I look in the treatment rooms, I see a treatment table, a bit like an operating table, bare walls, it's cold, and, and a trolley. Um, are we? Do you think uh, that's an environment where we can get parents in or should we be having big comfy chairs or have I missed something? I think the treatment rooms are a really wonderful resource because it keeps the child's bedroom or hospital room as a safe place. So if we're doing procedures in their hospital bed or on their parent lounge where that's meant to be their safe place during their period of illness, we then can continue for children that will have repeated hospitalisations that their bedroom is no longer a safe place and maybe a re-traumatisation every time they're admitted. So utilising the treatment room is an external environment and it is a generally a bare room. However, most treatment rooms will have some sort of uh, child life therapy equipment box. We might have some books or toys. 
it does have monitoring equipment and it is a nice big wide room so that if we need multiple people in there, we can have them in there, including the trolleys. Sitting the parent on the bed though? I mean, wouldn't you like a big comfy chair? It's not very comfortable all the time for parents. It is awkward, but it is the kind of bed where we can have them sat up. They can hold their child in a nice cuddle prior and often we familiarise the child with the room prior to the procedure starting. So we'll get mum and or dad or carer to hop in there with the child, sit up on the bed, gosh, let's pop the telly on, Uh, look at this book, there is a TV. Would you like, you know, parents often have an iPad. So it's about setting the scene that the room is different to their bedroom and that it is a place for procedures. Obviously then in some children going to the treatment room can then be quite scary for them ongoing, but it's better than that being their bedroom to be the scary place. Well, that's great to know that there's a lot of thought actually gone into into the rooms and the way you use uh, use the rooms. Uh, Jenny, this issue of cuddle, the what did you call it, Emily? The procedural cuddle. There's about oh, I think 17 terms we More uh, terms. we found. More <laughs> terms now. So is, is is this a fudge? Is this a euphemism that uh, clinical staff use to make themselves feel better? Is it a dodge? I mean, is is or is, it, is it bad? Uh I think the difficulty with having so many terms is just the recognition that we do and so we can't assume we know what someone means. So I think the message we took out of that study is that you have to be really descriptive when you are telling someone that you want to hold a child a certain way because your idea of a comforting hold is not necessarily the same as somebody else's. So what you call it in that context doesn't really matter as long as you explain the hold um, and and that it's an appropriate hold. It's not. It doesn't cross the line to to being holding down or forceful or against the child's will. And that's the theory, Jenny. But I'm um, thinking that are we in la la land here? Uh, because sort of when you know when are you crossing the line? What goes from a procedural cuddle or a hold to being forceful? Yeah, so that is that is really tricky um, and I think what can happen as well is it can be a creep. So you can start with a, a cuddle and the child gets slightly distressed and it's a bit more of a cuddle and then the child gets even more distressed so you get a second person to hold their legs because they're kicking them up and down and before you know it, you're holding all four limbs and the child's screaming. Um, so we have to be really wary of that and have to be ready to stop a procedure at any point if needed. In terms of where it crosses the line to forceful, again, that's tricky because everybody's line is different. Um, So I was involved in a project developing guidelines for holding young people with disability in schools for their immunisations. So um, looking at the... um, These are secondary schools. I I think we often forget that adolescents often have a great deal of fear... um, and often need to be held as well for procedures. Um, And particularly where there is um, intellectual disability and communication is difficult um, or a little bit trickier. Um, So we had had a group of experts decide about the the aspects that went into these guidelines, including paediatricians, mental health staff, allied health and school staff, and we had some young people and parents as well. And the biggest consideration they came up with in terms of where the line was, was the level of the stress of the young person, which links in with what Emily's saying. So if you take that as a bit of a, uh, I guess, an easy guide in terms of the the level of distress, because every child has a, has a different threshold as well. Thanks, Jenny. Um, you mentioned disability and just to touch briefly, do you think uh, well, I'd ask Kat first. Is it more difficult doing procedures on kids with you know, significant, might be physical disabilities or intellectual disabilities? I think children or young people that may have an intellectual disability potentially will have more difficult time helping them to understand why the procedure needs to go ahead. That's not a blanket statement, but it is something that potentially would complicate planning a procedure. I think children with especially quite profound physical disabilities, potentially also with an intellectual disability, are almost a forgotten part of a procedure because 
although they may not be able to use their limbs as well as an able-bodied child, therefore they can't kick or, or move their arm, they may still need procedural support or positions of comfort to help them still tolerate the procedure despite the fact they may not be able to tell us that it, they're scared or that they're in pain. I have a feeling that we've touched on something quite important here, Jenny, that the overall the principles and the ethical ideals are really the same. There's no sort of different ethic for, for people with, with a disability, but like we're perhaps not as good as we could be with kids who don't have disabilities, I suspect we need to be even better for kids with, with disabilities because we forget that they're going through exactly the same things that other kids do too when they have procedures. And it's actually just too easy to restrain them. I mean, sometimes they're just restrained sitting in their wheelchair to get there so they don't fall out. So there's already a sense of restraint. Yeah, so they can't they can't move away and if they can't verbalise, then the usual methods we're used to of a child um, uh, saying no or stop or exhibiting a lack of assent is not there. But that doesn't mean that they do assent. And it's similar it's similar to babies, really, that we do things to babies without, you know, an active assent process. Um and we restrain babies all the time just by holding them or swaddling them um, to do procedures. I suspect there are lots of nonverbal cues that we, we would be able to use. And, and I guess too also and we're recruiting the parents into that, that they know their, their child and so they, they can help their child tell us when we're going across the line. That's really hard to find sometimes. Emily, I'd like to ask you though, what, if you've got some experiences, you know, where, where harm has come from being... From being held. Yeah, I do. I might start with my um, analogy that I love to use about um, where procedural um, distress can come from. So uh, I like to describe it as an empty cup. Every child starts their journey, um, their healthcare journey with an empty cup. And uh, every procedure that doesn't go too well, we just fill that cup up little bit by little bit. Um, and then if they've had too many, you know, negative procedural experiences, the cup can overflow. And then in some cases, we're seeing um, examples where patients can't even get in the front door anymore because of the trauma that's happened from that. So I think sometimes clinicians can get quite task focused and think uh, we need to get this drip. And then when the child does recover quite quickly afterwards, they think, great, but then that's one bit of the cup. Uh, so it's important to think of the whole. Um, and I can think of, I can think of an example um, of a case I knew about of a seven-year-old girl um, who needed to come into hospital. It was an elective admission um, for chronic constipation. Um, and she needed to have a nasogastric tube put down to have the um, bowel prep. Um, so it was not a medically urgent procedure. Um, and uh, this young girl had a preference for having nitrous oxide, which is the, sometimes termed the happy gas or the laughing gas, um, which is one we use for lots of procedures around the hospital. Um, and that was her preference to have the nitrous gas to help her have the nasogastric tube inserted. Um, and on this particular occasion, there was no one around that was trained in that. Um, so they escalated to a different um, sedation agent um, and that didn't go well and uh, she didn't feel sedated. Uh, and then they decided, that's all right, we, we just need to get this done. And so the decision was made um, at some point along the way, as Jenny explained before, sometimes things can start, also, I think all things start well-meaning. And then um, unfortunately, this ended with um, the seven-year-old girl being wrapped in a bed sheet and um, restrained to have her nasogastric tube um, popped down, um, which was very distressing for her. Um, and then uh, she had her treatment and went home. Um, and then for recurrent admissions, um, where she needed to come in and have her nasogastric tube inserted again, um, she was so traumatised by that experience that... Um, none of the sedatives would work. Um, she'd sort of lost trust that, you know, because the other sedative hadn't worked and she was held down anyway, had lost trust that any medicine we gave her would work and we would just hold her down to get it done. So this girl actually has to have general anaesthetics now to have her nasogastric tube popped in. So that's an extreme example, but one of uh, a child that had her preference for um, a way that she liked to have her procedure done um, that then escalated to um, 
restraint and now has, you know, interrupted her journey and it's going to take a long time to rebuild that, that trust back. And that trust is so important, uh, isn't it? But gosh, there's so much in that in that story. I like the way you said that we had to get it done. I mean, I know, I know that's not specifically you, we had to get it done, but, you know, that's about the, you know, hospital or, or clinician-centred care. We're busy, we've, we're just going to do it. And it highlights too, um, you know, potentially either the lack of planning or considering um, how to rebook if, if we had planned for nitrous oxide and that was the preference and that perhaps that had worked before, uh, wasn't there. So we just need to reset and uh, it'd be fascinating to think about what the parents' role might have been in, in that and were they enabled, powered to say, no, let's wait till we've got nitrous, we'll come back tomorrow or whether they contributed to it. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's a really fascinating story and it sounds also like that cup got filled up to the top really quickly. One bad experience and it's full. And, uh, you know, when I talk with our anaesthetic colleagues and we've published and work with them, you know, the mantra is every procedure has to go well. Yep. And I think that's exactly what you're describing. Kat, what about you? I mean, I, mean, I don't know in either some of your roles or perhaps in complex care where patients are, you know, outpatients more. Have you got experiences that are like that, things that have happened? Yeah, I think particularly on the wards and in my previous role as clinical nurse consultant after hours, frequently procedures, you the clinical nurse consultant after hours is called upon to assist with procedures. Potentially that call can come a little bit too late at times. The procedure has already started to go off the rails. The child is very distressed and it can be quite difficult to bring it back to a calm situation. So I think I think every nurse in this hospital has probably been involved in a procedure that hasn't gone as well as they had initially hoped. And I think, I guess, in those situations, cats sometimes parents are also, you know, frustrated, and they, you know, they, they're thinking of of, of the greater good, get it done. They're tired, um, but maybe the way they parent, they just say, just get it done. Is that? Do you think that comes out a bit? Frequently, I think a parent who is frustrated that the procedure hasn't gone the way they had hoped for a multitude of reasons, often a parent will say, just hold them down and get it done. And I think thinking about that ethically and we, when we think about that in the zone of parental discretion, are they then now approaching causing harm to their child in a psychological sense despite the fact that they are genuinely hoping to avoid harm from a medical point of view. So I think that in those moments of extreme distress and frustration, parents often close to tears themselves while the child or adolescent is crying. It can be really confronting and it's a skill for nursing staff to really bring that procedure back down and often it means stopping the procedure and coming back and planning it to try it again another time. I mean, it's such sensible uh, advice. But, you know, one of the things that's come up is, is parents, and Emily, you were talking about it at the beginning and the sort of resources for parents. And, we, you know, we talked a moment ago about about empowering parents. So I think you know, here at you know, Children's, but I think at, at most of other big children's hospitals I'm involved in, we think of child and family-centred care. We respect parents as their role as parents, natural decision makers, but a role as, as being the parents. But to come to hospital, they're out of routine parenting situations. Uh, and so it's not necessarily fair to think of them as having all the skills to do the right thing, to be the best parent they can uh, on the day. And they can just be normal human beings who just want it over and, and, and moving on. Um, and Jenny, Katz sort of said, look, well, maybe we we need to stop. What's your approach to those situations which are escalating? Well, I would like to think that everybody in that room at the time could could call what I what I call an ethical pause. So call a timeout. Um, except in the case where the procedure is needed um, as an emergency, a true emergency procedure, where it's uh, it's life-threatening or near to life-threatening, in which case it may be appropriate to hold the child, even forcefully, because the um, the risk of harm is greater, is is so great. 
So in the emergency situation, then that you know beneficence is traded against respect for the child, and and I think you know Cat was describing a situation, and, and I think Emily too, where it's just escalating and escalating and escalating. And I really love the way you use the word ethical pause, and that's not just because you're CNC bioethics. Um, because there is something in that pause, isn't there? And that, that that's really that's really big. And actually labelling it as an ethical pause, I think, really adds some gravitas to the moment and, and makes us think a bit more deeply about what we've just been doing and, and what we should be doing. Yes, I think I think it serves several purposes. First of all, I think on, in a simple way, Usually what happens when things escalate is all the emotions in the room, the emotions of the child and the parents and the clinical staff get heightened. And if you call a timeout, that can serve to bring those emotions back down so we can all think a little bit more rationally. But I think also it's about really questioning, even if we're not using ethical terms, the um, emphasis we place on getting the procedure done versus the emphasis we place on our respect for the child and um, the child's preference and choices and the level of child's distress. And is it really more important to get this done right now um, than um, respect the, that the child is very distressed and that we are causing the child a degree of harm, possibly a great degree of harm in the long term? So, and I think the reason why parents often want to insist that that um, they want a procedure done right now is that they only see the two choices of not having the procedure done at all or holding the child down. But we do have other options. Um, we do have a lot of resources in the hospital and usually that with most procedures, if we think about it, they don't need to be performed right at this moment. There's very few procedures that need to be performed right at the moment. That doesn't mean that it's not um, more inconvenient to delay a procedure or uses more resources or more people's time um, or is, you know, the parents' time, if they're taking time off work or um, they've had to travel. But in the context of the child's well-being, short and long-term well-being, we can usually um, call, um, call a pause and it might be short, it might be enough to regroup, it might be longer to plan the procedure again, but to think really about whether we're causing harm to the child, is there an alternative to the way we're doing things right now? And if there is, what resources do we need to make that happen? And I think we're also uh, in, in that you know, ethical pause, obviously acknowledging the potential harm, not just to the, well, the harm that's probably happening to the child, but the escalating risk of harm to the other people in the room there. But I think labelling ethical also gives it a sense of courage that it needs to take, to, 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 to call a pause when things are just rolling along like that and be the one. And we know that hospitals are full of power structures and we're trying to break those down. Uh, and, and I think, you know, this is why we have essential ethics. This is why we're trying to show people what's the ethics behind and give people the language and, and strength of practice and courage to do that. Emily, did you want to add? I was just going to add um, the power of planning, which keeps popping up, um, can help to facilitate those ethical pauses and give uh, people confidence in the middle of a procedure to do so. I went in my role in Comfort Kids, um, encourage a procedural huddle just before you go in and that will involve um, usually the parent, um, then the proceduralist, whether it's a nurse, a doctor, whoever's going to be in the room. And that can you can do really good planning even with five minutes beforehand. Um, and coming up with a plan A, a plan B, sometimes a plan C. So everyone has a, an expectation of when when do we abort, sort of what's our threshold, um, when do we need to move to plan B or plan C. And then that can happen smoothly in the moment um, because we find often when there's not a plan or a plan B is when people can get a bit stressed and go, oh, well, we need to get it done. Um, and then often that's stress is shown in front of the child and that's going to heighten the situation. Whereas if we have a plan A and then it's not going to plan, we're noticing increase in distress or perhaps even the procedure's not going the way we thought it would, everyone can be calm and say, oh, how about we move on to plan B? And then that's not spoken about in front of the child of these, you know, uh, 
quick uh, quick decisions that often aren't done with much planning. Um, and it can encourage, you know, whether it's the parent or the nurse with that power imbalance to maybe speak up um, to say, hang on, uh, let's, let's move to plan B rather than having to feel like they have to call out a clinician to say, I need you to stop or stop what you're doing. So I think, yeah, even the smallest amount of planning can help to facilitate you know, those those smooth plan A, plan B, plan Cs, and then those ethical pauses because everyone has that idea before going in. Yes, yeah, so you're actually giving us an ethical start yeah. <laughs> as well as an ethical pause. I think that that's, that that's really good. We spent a bit of time and we thought about, I think, you know, probably been thinking about some slight, some children and slightly older kids and an example then of the, of the pseudonaut nasogastric is I'm still reeling um, from that. I can absolutely see and understand and I know of examples of different things but like that. What about babies? Is it just as bad for a baby? I think it can be. I think very young babies are almost easier because we know that they would respond to swaddling and that would make them feel safe or we could use an adjunct like sucrose be sweet to the baby. I think the difficulty, especially in babies, I think for nasogastric tubes, is it's just always quite confronting and almost traumatic for the parents. I can't imagine having a nasogastric tube put down your nostril into your stomach, which is painful and scary, and a baby that cannot communicate in any other way than crying. I think Many nurses who've worked in paediatrics have seen a parent leave the bedside, rush from the room in tears, not able to cope with what they see their baby going through, but also potentially that they can't protect them from that harm. Although, again, potentially we see that as a reasonable harm. We need to feed this baby. But it is very distressing, um, I think, for everybody involved. Yeah, and, and I think we can't underestimate what the baby later on might, how that might influence other things that happen. And, of course, everybody's going to have other negative stimuli um, like vaccinations and other medical interventions through their time. Emily, do you get involved with even babies? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, swaddling is a term that we should should reserve for babies. I, like that example I gave of swaddling the eight, uh, the seven-year-old, that's certainly not a swaddle <laughs> at that point. Um, but swaddling, as Kat mentioned, is a comfort measure for the little ones um, because they're used to being in, in the womb and they find that as a comfort. But I think uh, once they get a little bit older, um, then you know, they, they love to have the freedom of once they realise their limbs are attached, <laughs> um, they they like to be able to move and kick around. And I think, you know, if we're thinking about what we need to do for the procedure, do we need all four limbs restrained? Is it okay if the baby has their legs free to kick? Because that's a comfort measure. That's for them being able to sort of, you know, kick that stress out. Um, do we need them to be completely still? Or, you know, can we do things like um, breastfeeding is a comfort measure for babies. We can time a breastfeed um, and sucrose, as Kat mentioned. Um, so there's lots of things, um, dummies, pacifiers, um, even sometimes, you know, timing um, things like scans with a nap so that we're not having to, you know, um, do rest, uh, restraint and things like that. So, um, yeah, there are certainly things that can be done to help help um, comfort babies through procedures. That's really good to know, Emily. So, so we get to get near the end, Kat, and I'm going to ask all of you about sort of how you feel about, you know, your journey and what's happened with, you know, holding children as part of your work and even going up to the bedside, I guess, and they cry when you want to take some observations, which is fairly simple. What's it feel like and what's the sort of cumulative toll, cat? I think when, particularly as a junior nurse, you might find yourself in a situation doing something that you don't think is quite right, but not sure how to get out of it or, or to stop it um, and, and feel that you can advocate for the child or the parent or even yourself feeling uncomfortable in that situation. I think in the early days of being at the Royal Children's Hospital, as a younger nurse, um, I lacked the experience and the understanding of what would be going on for the child to then feel empowered to stop it or plan better, or I didn't know the, about the resources that were available. I think, and that has sort of influenced pursuing the clinical nurse consultant after hours role because it has such an after hours procedural 
role as part of the role. You know, do we really need to do this at 2am? Can we wait until business hours when something like Comfort Kids can be involved? You know, and I think part of that work that I very much enjoyed was to be able to make procedures on the weekends or in the after hours of night shift better for the child, the family, as well as the clinicians. And do you feel good about that? I mean, do you end up with actually what might be a terrible experience for you? you, Can you actually go the other way and it's gone well, even though it may not be all that comfortable for the kid in the end, but we've done our best to minimise it. Do you actually feel good about it or is it neutral? Absolutely. I think it's, there can be, there's been absolute celebrations in some of those treatment rooms when we've managed to plan a procedure really well, potentially things like having a dance party with the patient prior to starting. You know, you can, nurses and doctors will do all sorts of things to try and make the child comfortable. And I think especially in a child that has potentially a trauma history or has had some previous procedures go quite badly, having a procedure go smoothly, minimal distressed, potentially a good sedation plan, the child comes out happy and smiling and the IV is in and well taped very big cause for celebration. And I think as clinicians, we don't celebrate those small moments where we've done really well in a minor moment enough. Well, when we move from podcasting to video presentations, Kat, I want to invite you to come and do the dance party and celebrate. (laughs) We can see your moves. What about you, Jenny? I mean, you've been had a lot of experience, I'll say this the right way, you have a lot of experience. Uh, do you feel like that? Do you feel that the negative ones have taken their toll, the good ones are good? I mean, does it add up to being, it's good to be a paediatric nurse or it drags you down? Um, I, I absolutely agree. Having said that, I think we forget that people, the clinicians who are new to paediatrics, um, this is one area that doesn't really happen in the same way in the adult setting. Um, particularly with procedures. It may happen with other mental health and other areas. Um, So the degree to which we hold for procedures in a paediatric hospital can be quite shocking to a graduate nurse or a new doctor. And I think they don't get a lot of support. So I think we need to remember those new to paediatrics. They also are often the bottom of this power hierarchy so they're the least able to speak up when they feel, feel uncomfortable. But perhaps they're the ones that are m- the most important to hear from because it's possible that those of us who've been around for a long time have become a bit desensitised to the amount that we hold and how we hold and how much distress it causes. So I think that it does, it can, um, holding for procedures can have a cumulative um, effect on clinicians, um, negative effect. Um, if there's a degree of moral distress involved. And uh, one of the reasons for moral distress is if um, you feel that that something is morally wrong but you don't have the control to change it, you don't have the power to change things. And I think that's where thinking about um, things like holding a pause, that anyone in the room can call the pause, in a similar way that at RCH now We've managed to, to roll out many years ago now a very successful campaign that anyone can call a MET, a medical emergency, um, including parents, that that we should be able to have a similar culture where, where it's okay for anyone to call a timeout in that room, including the child. It's really interesting. It introduced moral distress. I've picked up, I think, from what Kat was, was saying, and I know in our perhaps in our podcast about moral distress, we're often thinking about rather large and grand situations where nursing staff might be looking after, you know, somebody in a terrible situation in intensive care and not feeling that continuing uh, that life-sustaining treatment is in the interests and not able to stop it and trying to advocate for the kid and there's, you know, terrible moral distress. But actually, I can imagine on a nursing career, it could be death by a thousand cuts and these little procedures going poorly would really erode uh, someone's sense of, of, of their great dream to be a, a, a paedi- paediatric nurse or even a paediatrician. And so, but I can also sense the other way, as Kat was saying, we get it right, then that's a good thing. And I'm, I'm sensing maybe, Emily, because you smile a lot, that, <laughs> and you've taken up this role and being around a lot of procedures, that it's not death by a thousand cuts for you, that you're actually bringing something really good and feeling good about what you do. Is that right? It's probably healing all those cuts through knowing that there's another way. Um, I 
um, concur with uh, Kat about being a junior nurse and sort of feeling like you just didn't know another way. And I, lo- I look back and think about how far I've come and, and all that I've learned um, over my time at RCH. Um, but it is important to celebrate those wins and um, when you can see a, a parent crying happy tears because they're telling you, I didn't know procedures could go this way after having, you know, so many negative experiences with, you know, it doesn't take moving mountains to have a good procedure sometimes. It just takes slowing down, listening to parents, listening to the child's preferences and, um, yeah, you can heal those cuts. Isn't that fantastic? What a positive way for us to end. I just wanted to finish it with, with, with some thoughts about we, we've had quite a lot of discussions about respecting respect for the child and, and, and doing good, obviously minimising harm and respecting the child is intrinsically good for them. But I don't think we can entirely separate that from doing good um, and obviously doing the procedure well has the instrumental good of it just going well, the instrumental good of meaning the next procedure's going well. So the two really, really mesh. But I'm going to take away two P words, and I know I'm not meant to pop my P's in podcast land, and one is planning, and that really comes up so strongly. Really plan, even if it is after hours, or sometimes even in a bit of a rush, we can get through these elements. And the other is pause. And we're going to call it an ethical pause because that's it's a really important and morally violent thing to do. So, Emily, thank you for coming and joining us on Essential Ethics. It's been fascinating to hear about the work and the good work that you're doing. Thanks, John. And, Kat, thanks so much for coming and sharing us your experiences. Uh, it's really valuable to hear from the bedside and uh, also know that how you see have seen yourself as a junior nurse and where you've grown to and hopefully procedures are less scary for you to be involved in and you can bring that experience to bear when you've got other staff you're working with. Thank you. Thank. And and Jenny, thanks for coming and helping us delve into the ethics of this and also that it's heard here, inventing, inventing the term ethical pause. And I think that's uh, going to be a great contribution too. Thanks, John. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with your colleagues. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Dame Elizabeth Murdoch Nursing Development Scholarship. The podcast is recorded and edited in creative services here at Royal Children's Hospital. It was produced by Dr Jenny O'Neill, Clinical Nurse Consultant Bioethics. If you would like to find out more about the activities of the Royal Children's Hospital Bioethics Centre including our annual conference, please visit us at rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics. Be inspired.